I want to give a shout out to Aventus. Aventus is the world's leader in trade surveillance for digital assets. Trusted by Coinbase, Gemini, OSL, and many others, Aventus is also helping scores of other firms enter the crypto markets. For digital asset trade surveillance, think Aventus. And I also want to give a shout out to Kraken. With Kraken, the cryptocurrency exchange, you can instantly buy and sell over 50 of the most popular cryptocurrencies or even earn additional rewards through their industry-leading staking service. Payouts are twice a week and you can earn up to 20% each year. Visit Kraken.com now to learn more. Exodus is one of the most loved crypto apps due to its sleek design and easy-to-use exchange feature. Secure and manage over 130 cryptocurrencies from your computer or phone. No account registration is required. Download Exodus at exodus.com and you're ready to go. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for tuning into The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, Director of News at The Block, and we have a very exciting episode of the show for you folks. It's been a wild week for the crypto market, or a wild few weeks. As a matter of fact, we had to take one week off just to sort of sift through the nonsense. So glad you're back with us. We've been trying to book as many folks to help unpack the mania as possible people who are investing in the space or trading in the market um and today we have someone who's got their finger on the pulse of what's being seen on the retail side of things as well as on the institutional side it's aya kantorovich she's the head of institutional sales at falcon x how are you I'm good. I'm good, Frank. Thank you so much for for having me. I uh, I can't help but laugh that you said it's been uh, a few wild weeks. It feels like every week is wild. It doesn't stop. We haven't had a break just yet. Well, you know, we've gone back and forth on Twitter, or rather, Telegram, more times than I can count. You've got more <laughs> energy in real life than I ever would have anticipated. Um, we've spoken on the phone, but never in person. Maybe in Miami next week. But, you know, I've, you know, I'm always bothering you trying to find out what's going on with the flows. You know, you're like, Frank, I'm trying to work. I'm like, well, what about the flows? Tell me about the flows. Um, and so last week when we touched base, when we saw that first big drawdown, um, we came out of it. You, you told me that funds were, were buying up the dip. And mm -hmm. this is kind of the trend that we keep seeing played out. Time and time again, an overleveraged retail market that translates into cascading liquidations that quickly get bought up by large funds. And we saw today my, my colleague Tim Copeland reported that whales bought $3 billion of Bitcoin mm -hmm. when its price fell. So I guess to sort of kick things off, um, for listeners who aren't familiar about um the business that Falcon X operates. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about the firm and how it sort of gives you a, a vantage point to see this sort of cyclical um, nature of the market that we're always going back and forth about. Sure, absolutely. So Falcon X is a cryptocurrency financial services company, and today it provides institutions trading, credit, and clearing services. And so, as you mentioned, we service a wide gamut of different personas 
both institutions that will face retail uh, as well as institutions that have different trading strategies. Those include uh, hedge funds, uh, momentum venture funds, uh, exchange arbitrage, systematic funds, and high-frequency traders. And so uh, we currently sit on a lot of data, uh, primarily through those flows across different uh, geographies, both U.S. Uh, and Asia. And, um, you know, as you mentioned, during some of these market movements, it's nice to see, you know, what the reflection and the differences are both across the different personas, but also across the different geographies. So what do we see happen last week? You know, there were an intense amount of liquidations, um, mm-hmm. but also in terms of Bitcoin exchange inflows, the highest level since March 2020. What are some of the other types of noteworthy characterizations of the market do we see? Yeah, so a few points that um, I like to highlight about last week. It was definitely one of the largest drawdowns drawdowns we've seen historically to date. Uh, so we saw two billion dollars worth of liquidations happening across BTC. Uh, we saw over seven hundred million of liquidations happening in DeFi across different markets. Uh, and we, to your point, saw uh, a large inflow, largest inflow since March of twenty twenty. And primarily, I think there are a couple factors here. It was. You know, March 18th was the 15th largest uh, loss intraday in BTC and the third worst intraday performance for altcoins since 2014. So definitely a lot of price movement. Now, um, one thing that's interesting to note is breaking it down by persona. What were we seeing across different personas? So the first is, as you mentioned, retail liquidations uh, was a large portion of this, as well as liquidations across international exchanges and then a cascading effect. One thing that I thought was interesting is when you have this level of heightened volatility, you see some exchanges begin to shut down their trading capabilities. Um, And when these centralized trading platforms shut down those capabilities, then traders don't have the ability to top up on margin in order to maintain their positions. And so you see a continued cascade. Um, Now, whether it's institutions or retail, it impacts both parties. And so the inability to move money during that heightened level of volatility is really detrimental to the market. Um, And I think that's one of the things you saw play out as well. Uh, Now, the other thing that I think is really, really interesting to even take a step back, um, since January of this year, the types of personas that are getting involved in the space, the types of institutions that are quote unquote, our new whale entrants are a completely different persona than the crypto native whales that you mentioned may have been, you know, driving the the buying at the dip of these prices. And so these are, you know, potentially corp treasuries. These are large billion dollar plus asset managers. And these traders and investment associates and advisors have a completely different level of drawdowns um, that they're allowed to maintain uh, during a market like this. So what I mean by that is, let's say the market, you know, falls down by 30% they have an obligation, a fiduciary obligation to then take money off the table. Similarly, if the market goes up by, let's say, even 100%, they have a fiduciary obligation to take money off the table. So these aren't necessarily the momentum diamond hands uh, that we're so used to seeing in crypto. These are you know, CFOs who have a completely different responsibility around how they allocate capital uh, effectively and then when um, they will go ahead and liquidate those positions, uh, both when the market goes up, but you know, especially when the market comes back down. Interesting. And so are you seeing those types of new client profiles sign up to use 
your platform, has that translated into um, new customer growth? What does it look like from the Falcon X perspective? Yeah, absolutely. So we've been seeing a lot of these uh, newer clients, primarily around large family offices and multi-billion dollar asset managers and prop shops from the traditional financial lens. And so um, from a firsthand experience, that's where we've seen the drawdowns come into play, where we've seen traders take losses in these markets, despite, you know, perhaps having a momentum thesis for these projects in the long run. Yeah. So, I mean, I think this might be the sixth or, you know, this keeps happening, right? These sort of intense drawdowns that are quickly mm -hmm. bought up. We kind of are still far from the all-time highs. It's not like we're getting completely back to where we, you know, started from. But what does it take to sort of get the market out of this cycle of, you know, these major corrections? And at what point does it burn the retail traders who can't get in and top up on their margin or the institutions or the, you know, the CFOs who convince their board that this this was a good move. And then, you know, you have these these massive volatile days. At what point do both of those groups just say enough is enough? Put the question differently. I guess there's two questions here. At what point do they sort of say enough is enough? And at what point and how do we break out of that? Yes, yeah, so I'll start with the, the last question. I don't think we're going to break out of it. And I think the reason for that is we're going to continue to see as more institutions come in, uh, we're going to continue to see institutions that do not have a momentum long venture investment persona uh, in terms of the day to day trading that they do. Um, and that could be both good and bad for the space. Uh, now, to your first question, I think one of the things that we're going to continue to see, I personally believe that you're going to see both retail and institution move towards the direction of infrastructure players, whether that's exchanges or DEXs, that have 100% uptime. So to give you an example, you know, last week, not everyone went down, but there were larger players that did. And so what you'll see is that level of trust that someone, a user may have in terms of I'm allocating my capital and I'm leaving it here. Uh, but I was recently liquidated and lost, let's say, $2 million plus dollars on that liquidation. I'm going to move it to a different uh, player where I can have that level of trust. And so that's at least what we've seen in the last week. Our sales inbound funnel has uh, completely spiked, primarily because we had 100% uptime. And one of the things you would double click in that is, you know, exchange versus like a brokerage model versus someone who's aggregating liquidity as one example. Another thing that I think is really interesting is if you look at DEXs, DEXs had 100% uptime. In fact, DEXs had the largest volume day to date on May 19th. So um, in that period where you had the market drawdown. And so I think that's uh, another very interesting example and something to keep an eye on in terms of, again, going back to like a retail player, I think for the institutions who have a lot of concerns around KYC AML, and, uh, you know, knowing the other party of a trade and, you know, being able to, you know, have all their compliance checked off with some of these DEXs may not be moving there, but maybe more on the retail side or players who are more comfortable with that level of ambiguity uh, will move in that direction in the future. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Like when you look at some of the data points that you sent over, um, you look at Uniswap V3 hitting an all-time high. We when we think about total value locked 
across the board with stable coins, right? The supply has now surpassed 100 billion mm -hmm. across all the various coins. A lot of the DeFi tokens took a hit in terms of price, but the, the protocols themselves showed quite a bit of resiliency, especially mm -hmm. relative to March of last year. So was one of the big takeaways of trading within the last few weeks that, you know, DeFi has proven itself to be more resilient and how do we continue to see that cement itself in the market? Yeah, that's a great point. And I can't emphasize this enough, but these stress tests in the market are so important for us to understand if the infrastructure is going and the smart contract is going to play out the way it should and the way it was built. And I completely agree with you. I think it was a success story uh, for DeFi. Now, I don't think that the two, whether it's DeFi or centralized exchanges and infrastructure players are independent of one another. I think they go hand in hand. There's a lot of areas where you still will need the centralized infrastructure player uh, for specific market liquidity needs. But what I do think is we will continue to see growth in DeFi, especially given, you know, the, as you mentioned, right, the total value locked may have dipped during the market response of last week. However, it is already back, I think, up 25% from lows of last week. And so, you know, the application by which people are using these protocols hasn't changed week over week, uh, which I think is is very important to note. It also kind of shows um, this is this is really big for Ethereum. And it's something uh, the last guest we had on the show talked about it seems like i don't know exactly what the forces are behind it maybe you can speak to this but it seems like ethereum is finding equal footing these past few weeks with bitcoin on the institutional side yeah so in terms of what we're seeing in conversations with some of these traditional financial players ethereum is very much top of mind now it's still not there with where bitcoin is those conversations are being had internally uh, with boards in terms of conversations on whether or not to invest. But what's so notably different about Ethereum, and I think you even saw this week, Carl Icahn uh, came out saying that, you know, Bitcoin is only a store of value. Ethereum is that plus an application, right? And so you can actually measure it in terms of ways that these institutional investors are comfortable with. There's cash flows. If you take, for example, MakerDAO, um, and then there's also a lot of innovation happening around layer two. I think Arbitrum, for example, will be launching tomorrow is a layer two that should be lowering gas fees, uh, as well as um, Matic is another layer two in the space focused on the same thing. And so, you know, one thing I always like to say is if you look at the last eight months, an interesting trend has been if you take some of these competing side chains, let's say Binance Smart Chain as one example, where they were like, hey, we have significantly lower fees, protocols and users moved over to that chain, which to me says that Ethereum has an application and use that people need. The fees is, may perhaps be the biggest bottleneck. And so if we can solve for that problem in the long run, Ethereum is definitely still a very important piece of the ecosystem. And I, and I completely agree. I think, um, you know, for institutional investors, uh, Ethereum is uh, something that they can much easily measure and, um, you know, project in terms of future cash flows and usage um, outside of just the store value narrative. Yeah, completely agree. And it's interesting, you know, when you think about how much more interest is growing in Ethereum, it's hard not to think about how that's been underpinned by some of the success stories we've seen 
in DeFi and the amount of capital that's sitting on the sidelines to invest in things that either touch Ethereum or the DeFi market. And that's kind of a bull case that exists for DeFi that maybe doesn't for Bitcoin, right? When you think about some of these recent big VC fundraises, they're not raising money to allocate towards Bitcoin. They're allocating to put money towards some of these projects that are innovating on decentralized credit mm -hmm. exchange, whatever it may be, derivatives. When you look at the, the flows, is the situation for Bitcoin less rosy? I mean, at the end of the day, you know, Ray Dalio has already come out and said that he owns some. Like, who else is there? You know, I guess there's the corporate treasuries, but how fast are they moving with all of this volatility? Like, I, I don't see when you think about endowments and corporate treasuries, they're in the business of preserving capital. And after the past month, I don't see, or I could see how the argument that investing in Bitcoin doesn't necessarily preserve capital could be one that makes sense. Yeah, that's a very, very fair question. I would say in terms of what we've been seeing on our end, uh, it does seem like anyone that is looking at a token outside of Bitcoin already owns Bitcoin. And these are the traditional asset managers. And so, you know, again, it feels like, you know, Bitcoin was the narrative that was pitched to these boards, to these investment committees. And once you're comfortable with Bitcoin, then you're allocating additional capital to some of these other tokens. Um, now, I agree with you that one thing I do think is that the price volatility in Bitcoin is already priced in to the price you see today. And so corporate treasuries, in my opinion, already have the volatility priced in. And that's why you see some of these drawdowns um, and some of these massive price drops. And that's why I do think personally that you'll continue to see those because, you know, again, when the price does drop 30%, the immediate reaction will be, we need to take profit off the table. Um, now, I don't necessarily think that, you know, some of the uh, volume that may have perhaps in the future gone to Bitcoin, go into Ethereum. I could be wrong, uh, but I do think they there will be some level of um, allocation to both. If uh, let's say you have a counterparty who you know truly believes in uh, cryptocurrency and the value add of these tokens. I want to give another shout out to Aventus. Aventus is the world's leading platform for digital asset trade surveillance and market risk. With some of the largest crypto exchanges and institutions in the world using Aventus to drive efficiencies in their regulatory operations. On June 22nd and the 23rd, Aventus and the Association for Digital Asset Markets will be co-hosting a premier virtual conference shining a light on Digital Asset Markets 2021. Visit AventusSystems.com today to register for this event so you can hear from the key regulators and thought leaders in digital assets. I have to give a shout out to Kraken, one of our sponsors. For the last 10 years, Kraken has been known as one of the best platforms for trading crypto online. Now with the new Kraken app, it's easier than ever to buy and sell over 60 of the most popular cryptocurrencies on the go 24-7. Simply download the Kraken app, connect to your bank account, and start investing for as little as $10. Just a minute is all it takes to get started. Visit kraken.com scoop now to learn more or search Kraken in the App Store. 
I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Exodus. Exodus is one of the most loved crypto apps due to its sleek design and easy to use exchange feature. Secure and manage over 130 cryptocurrencies from your computer or phone and interactive charts let you view the price history of a specific asset and your portfolio's performance over time. Sync your wallet across multiple devices to access your funds from anywhere. And maybe the best part, Exodus is integrated with Trezor Hardware Wallet, making advanced security easy for everyone. Download Exodus at exodus.com today. I want to shift gears a bit to, um, I was talking about this with the last guest on the show, about how I feel like news is kind of something that it's just becoming a such a, a wrecking ball in the market <laughs> in a way that probably was the case in 2017, not so much the case last year. Um, I Just like if you used to be in crypto or if you were in crypto in 2017, you remember like random articles pumping coins by like 40% mm-hmm. or random tweets or partnerships, you know, X protocols partnering with whatever and big ass green candle. We're seeing that again to an extent and we're seeing China anxieties creep into the price action as well. You mentioned that in your notes. What so what are you thinking when it comes to China and you know some of the things we're seeing out of the news about a crackdown and who knows what's coming down the pike and what's just, you know, talk but uh, share us your thinking about that. Sure, absolutely. Having also been in the space in 2017, I completely uh, know what you're talking about. And I, I think we're definitely seeing a lot of the same uh, at a completely heightened level, um, you know, these days. In terms of China, this is not the first time that we've seen headlines like these um, and actions, statements being published by Chinese authorities as it pertains to, you know, their views on cryptocurrency and crackdowns on potential any institutions or players that are touching them. Uh, if, if you remember, you know, it was back in 2017 where there was so much anxiety around whether China was going to crack down OTC desks that were staying uh, in China. That ended up not being the case in the long run. You know, China was really trying to protect retail investors and go after anyone that was, you know, potentially doing damage or, you know, risking any of these investors in the trading that they were doing. Um, now, one thing that I think is super important is just given the history of China, you know, for, for them as a nation, it's super important to make sure, you know, that they come off as, you know, an entity that is controlling the situation and, of course, not giving any risk to the weakening of the national currency. And so that's going to be important. And so, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if we see something like this again in the next year, um, because it is so, so important in the same way that in the U.S., you know, you're seeing a lot of anxiety in Congress around um, the potential weakening of the U.S. dollar. Uh, and so how will the U.S. respond? Um, very similar. Now, specific to the details around the action most recently around these specific miners, having spoken to some of the miners in the area, I think there's two different categories in which this falls into. One of the categories is as it pertains to areas in Mongolia. And so these are miners who typically will come from China when it is not rainy season. Uh, So the rain dries up, they'll move over to Mongolia where there's incredibly cheap electricity and mine for the rest of the year. Now, Mongolia just came out with a ban on mining that will definitely have an impact on the market, specifically towards hash rate. And what it does is there are miners in Europe, there are miners all over the world, there's miners in the US, 
in Canada. And so it'll be much better for the miners internationally. Now for the miners in China, majority of these miners currently sit in the Sichuan province that is run on hydropower. And so for China's recent statement around banning mining that comes from coal, you know, one of the things that I think will be great for the industry is that we continue to progress in the in the direction that we are progressing around uh, making sure that most of mining comes from renewable energy. Uh, and so that's going to be one of the areas, I think, of focus, especially as these bans perhaps heighten in Mongolia, uh, for example, or potentially China. But for the you know near and immediate term, there's going to be no impact, notably to the market or anything as it pertains to you know, Bitcoin transactions. Are you seeing any evidence of minor capitulation or sort of these actions from the government translating into, you know, large Chinese miners and lendings, lenders buying large puts downside? Recently, some people I'm talking to on the ground are hearing of fire sales of equipment mm -hmm. and, you know, just a lot of not good stuff as a result of a lot of the stuff you're talking about. Um, and, and, you know, the selling pressure maybe to cover costs or to cover these um, shutdowns could add or fuel a bear case. Yeah, I completely agree with you. What we saw on our end uh, in the last week was 100% minor sell pressure on BTC. And so we haven't seen any buybacks at these levels. Uh, so something to keep in mind. Now, whether that sell pressure came to, uh, you know, cover costs around, you know, concerns of future BTC mining developments, um, that could be one case, or just to have cash on the balance sheet in case of, you know, anything new changes in the future. Again, I think we, this isn't the end and this isn't the last thing uh, that we'll hear from China coming out of China regarding uh, miners. And I think this, you know, creates a, a really big opportunity for areas outside of China to expand into the industry. Again, big areas include Europe, uh, where you have pretty large mining facilities, as well as the US, all of them, uh, which have the ability now to, to really expand in size. So you're not too worried about the mining situation because you think that they're going to, you know, find new homes. Um, <laughs> that hash rate, hash rate is going to find a new home elsewhere. There's a number of plays here in the US. I think that's part of the reason why mining is becoming like much more at the forefront is just because like now it's kind of a little bit closer to home, but it's always been important. Mm -hmm. um, when you look at, you know, on the private side, right? Like we just keep seeing these massive fundraisers. Like there's definitely interest. It's it's a little shaky on the public market side of things and on the tokens. But when you think about maybe some of the tailwinds and headwinds to asset appreciation in the crypto market over the next few, most people are probably thinking about this thing in weeks, right? <laughs> Instead of months because <laughs> it moves so fast. Um, what are some of the tailwinds and, and headwinds you're talking about with maybe some of your counterparties or whomever you're engaging with. Yeah, you bring up a really good point, which is who are the net new players who are getting involved in the space, whether it's because they're actually trading or, you know, some of these private deals and sales. And I think that's uh, something definitely to keep an eye on in terms of, you know, what we're seeing, definitely more engagement from these very large international family offices, private investment organizations across the world. And when I look at just the net new capital that's coming into the space, it will definitely um, both, you know, continue to 
lead into asset appreciation. Now the question is, which asset? Uh, and that depends on where the capital is going into. But I think one of the things to keep an eye on, especially um, for both of us here in the U.S., is looking at the engagement on Wall Street and how are the banks uh, responding and reacting to some of the both price action, but also interest from clients. I think, you know, you and I have been in the space for some time now. And uh, one thing that's at least was very shocking to me is to see, you know, the narratives from the Goldman's and the Wells Fargo's and the Bank of America's, JP Morgan's, Morgan Stanley's changed so much, you know, over the course of- That's a lot of banks. Yeah, eight months. That's that sounds I'm, like uh, an, that's almost like an Animaniacs <laughs> song, you know? Like remember the Animaniacs back when we were kids? You know? We we should start one. I'm just uh, oh, I have the headline. Remember the the nations of the world? Probably eighty percent of this podcast is listened to by like boomers. So it's okay. I guess they watch it with their kids. So. If Soldier Boy is listening to this, I'm still waiting for the uh, crypto rap song. So that's that's really what I'm what I'm here for. I, I think we might have lost the plot a little bit, but I, you know, I know you guys are really into credit, so we'll shift gears and I'll ask a question about that. I feel like some of these lenders had to have gotten whacked these past few weeks. Like, is there risk there? I know everything's kind of like over collateralized and whatever, but yeah, so. There is risk. That risk exists. I think one of the things to note is if there is risk, you know, from a centralized platform perspective, you have the capability to shut, turn off the switch and maintain that risk to a certain degree uh, and then hedge it off. Now, on the DeFi side, that kill switch doesn't necessarily exist, um, which is why I think this was such an important stress test for credit in DeFi, and it performed incredibly well. Uh, but, mm-hmm. you know, relative to insurance funds that these different lending platforms have. And, and then on the on the centralized side, 100%, you know, for, for us, we are incredibly conservative around, you know, the, the entire industry runs on a T plus one 24-hour net limit for settlement. And even that, if you think about it, is risk. And so we're incredibly conservative around you know, how much T plus one limits are we providing our clients? How much, uh, what's their balance sheet? What is it being used towards? What positions are they levering? And thinking through, you know, some cool, uh, you know, future tools that we can use like XMargin, uh, where we can have that level of, of data and detail around positions and platforms that these different clients are using. But, you know, for us, it, it hasn't been, this is, it hasn't been our first stress test. You know, March 12th was another great example of that. But, you know, I, I think we're continuing to see if you're managing your risk with the expectation that a March 12th is going to happen tomorrow, uh, then you're, you know, probably doing your job right. Um, I would say my concern would be anyone who uh, considers those to be a rare use case. Did you have like a lot of defaults, like a default fallout? No. No defaults. No, we we uh, performed incredibly well. So proud of the team for that. But, you know, I think for us, what's been super exciting has been, uh, haven't been in this space for some time now and, and through a few of these dips is to see how much our product uh, is functioning um, and the stability of the product through, you know, that level of market volatility. So both on credit and trading, we had 100% of the time, no defaults. 
uh, and all of our clients came out of it. Many of them saying that, uh, you know, you need a stable counterparty for moments like these when it happens. That That's really, you know, what you need in a in a partner that you, you trust for trading and lending. Fair enough. Um, well, I want to be respectful of your time. So now you're busy. You probably have a lot of different sales calls to get to. Um, closing thoughts. What do you think you're most contrarian about right now? Honestly, I am super excited about the future of tokenization. I think that if we start to imagine one question I keep asking myself that I think is, you know, there, there isn't a right or wrong answer is, do you want to be under collateralized? Do you want to want to be right or do you want to get rich? <laughs> exactly. That's so do you want to be under collateralized or over collateralized? But specifically, do you want to be under collateralized with the collateral being a wide range of different assets in the space? So let's say I'm under collateralized, but my laptop uh, can act as my collateral. Or do you want to be over collateralized uh, with a limited amount of assets? which I think is the world we kind of see today um, and vice versa. So uh, for me, in, in that instance, the capital efficiency hasn't been solved yet in terms of just all the different things you can use as collateral today of things that have value and uh, across different platforms. So, you know, I think uh, once we can tokenize everything, that'll be, you know, just a huge, huge change in the way that we the value accrued across assets. Tokenization of the world. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we'll, we'll see you in Miami. Andreas and I have no idea which shows we book, so maybe we'll see you, maybe we won't. Maybe it'll just be me speaking into the mic alone and letting you. I, I might need you guys as my respite for the mania and surely the hangovers that will be experienced during those, um, those days on the horizon. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Thank you. It. Yeah, thank you, Frank, for having me. This was a lot of fun. We'll have you back on soon. Tell the folks at Falcon X we said hello. Talk to you next time.